Make America Awkward Again, coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothenberg. Hello and welcome back to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast where all we do is talk about Reinhold Niebuhr and some other stuff. I'm Cliff Bailey and I'm joined as usual by Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Just to look ahead at the coming weeks, we will be taking off after today until Easter. And we do wish you all a very meaningful and meditative Holy Week uh, to those who observe and a very joyous Easter. When we come back after Easter, we will be immediately hopping to it. (laughs) A little play on the Easter Bunny there. We will be hopping to it as we will be interviewing Harvard Theology and Ethics professor, Dr. Helan Gaston. So by the way, to our shame, we have not had a female on here and not for a lack of trying either. We tend to repel women, I think. But, uh, But lo and behold, suddenly we have two females in consecutive weeks, Dr. Gaston on the next show And we have a brilliant scholar joining us today. Maximum Niebuhr. Because today we turn our attention to an exciting and fascinating up-and-coming scholar in the political, uh, social, and anthropological realm, Dr. Josephine Grafe. Josephine, or Josie, has a long track record of research and has held numerous positions and fellowships at myriad uh, universities, think think tanks. She is currently co-convener and communication officer at the PSA German Politics Specialist Group, which I, I've been told uh, only for a couple more weeks. Um, and But she will be uh, a fellow at the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies in Washington, D.C., starting in June. She specializes in political violence, particularly uh, far-right and racially motivated violence and terrorism. We actually met her on Twitter, and it's been such a delight engaging with her and following her tweets, she certainly has a unique perspective on far-right extremism and politics at large, and we encourage all of our listeners to uh, go on and follow her. And to top it all off, she's a fan of your boy, Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, Josephine, such a pleasure to have you on. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Now for our audience, uh, Josie has generously uh, shared with us her project proposal for her research fellowship at the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. We have all read her proposal and have prepared questions. So I'll ask the first and we'll just kind of go round and round from there till we get to, to about an hour. Now, Josie, since we met on Twitter, the four of us, I thought it only appropriate your first question is a response to a tweet. This is from journalist Nicole uh, Skanga, and it came out last night. She tweets, quote, All New York Police Department officers, including plainclothes detectives, have been ordered to wear their full uniform tomorrow beginning at 7 a.m. ahead of of a possible indictment of former President Donald Trump. Now, they are obviously preparing for some kind of retaliation today for in the event that Donald Trump is arrested and taken into custody. And we here on Love Thy Neighbor are keeping our eye on the situation in real time. This is our news correspondent, Aaron Duncan, uh, who's (laughs) keeping an eye on the Twitter boards for news. 
Um, now, given your expertise and background, Josie, uh, what is going on right now in America? The rise of Trumpism and far-right groups and militias. This is unprecedented, um, especially what's happening today. Um, I'm wondering what you could tell us about what's happening here that perhaps we're too close to see. That's that's a good question, right? And also very kind of broad question. What's what's going on, right? What's going on <laughs> in, in the in the Top US? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, right, um, that I'm I'm not an an, an expert, perhaps, on on new US politics, um, and I think one of the things that really strikes you um, when when you look at at the US from a, from a German perspective is how different that part of white supremacy is, right? Mm. Where we have a former president involved in these these circles um, and how these things have developed um, you know since he left and uh, how the the storming of the capital in, in, in um, what two two years ago right mm -hmm. how that was you know uh, perhaps not even um, the peak of um, what we've been seeing and so this is again coming from a, from a German perspective it's it's obviously very worrying it, it's obviously kind of just just adding to that extreme level of uncertainty and threat and worry about, you know, the stability of liberal democracy and in the US, right? Which of course at the moment is coinciding with, with a broader question about the place of the US in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Looking at Ukraine in, in particular, um, the, the place of US uh, leadership and the, the extent to which the, the Biden administration can really work effectively abroad while all these things are going on at home yeah we we like to yeah. think that we have some blanket of protection with with nato and we can ha actually show some leadership uh in going through ukraine and these types of things but we have a president that has 50 50 shot of getting in in 2024 exactly that has plans who has stated publicly that he would take us out of nato and you just, we see this extreme nationalism move of, uh, you know, locking down the hatches and isolationism and all this type of stuff. So we we're in this weird position where we want to have kind of some global leadership, and we ha we undoubtedly you know have tons of military power and a lot of a lot of strength around the world. But it's actually on very uneven footing and uh, here at home. And that's a that's a scary thought. Exactly. It's incredibly scary, especially because we see just how powerful those narratives that go back to 2016 yeah. still are. Right. This idea of, you know, Trump still going on about I'm going to save you. I'm actually going to save the U.S. Oh, I'm going to save you from everything that's been that's been happening and all the, the you know, the, the, the things I've been seeing in the in, in the world. And they're going to take revenge on your behalf. Yeah. Right. Yes. On the on the establishment, what, you know, he projects as the establishment, uh, yeah. which of course he's part of in many ways, but um, right. you know, this is have this is enemy, right? And and especially in the second round, okay, to say, you know, I tried it one time, they kicked me out of office, they betrayed me, they betrayed us. Um, and this is, you know, kind of you know, a hero returning <laughs> to the scene yeah. um, and finishing his work in a way, right? So first and, it and, was make America yeah. great again. Now it's like he said a couple of weeks ago, I am your retribution. Exactly. Like, yeah, oh, that, I was just about to bring that up. Scary. I mean, that's that is that is striking. I was I thought of that when him saying that several times mm -hmm. as I was reading your proposal. You know what I mean? It really stuck out to me. Yeah, exactly. So we kind of you know we've reached stage three, and who knows what what stage 
you know, to, to stage two, and who knows what's going to be stage three, right? Mm. Um, especially, I mean, you know, I mean, um, with the with the elections, um, you know, being like what one and a half years away, it's um, almost always you know election time in the U.S. as well in a really really weird way because in Germany that's actually the case because we're these really important um, state elections, you know, at least like two three times a year so there is um you know some election um happening in germany all the time but even in the us it always feels like you know the next next election is coming up and it's it's always mm -hmm. important to keep an eye on that and and it's in, in a way i'm not even at this point at least worried about him actually returning to power but everything that will happen until then right and um, while he has that 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 scope to really you know play without those ideas of um revenge and and um yeah we should actually uh, probably be just as afraid for what happens in the event he loses again that um, too yes exactly so what will happen until then until the election um and then then also um af afterwards so in, in a way it's difficult to imagine a good outcome right yeah. this, this this is a very dangerous situation um it's a very dynamic situation mm -hmm. um there are lots of different 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 groups and forces involved and it's you know it, it's worrying for for all of us right i mean it's very difficult to to kind of um ignore this you know whether you're kind of an expert on the us or not it really really um touches all of us and and, and ultimately hasn't has an effect on the on the rest of the world now just a follow up real quick and then we'll go to zach are these so you, you you study through kind of an anthropological lens? Is is there a deep or even or or superficial um, any kind of connection? Do you think between the extremism that you see in Germany and that of the United States? Are are they because it, it's cropping up? It seems like it's a global threat of democracy around the world seems to be under threat of authoritarian types of impulses. Are, are you seeing a shared pattern or a shared relationship of any kind? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the extent to which state institutions and um, state employees themselves are, are involved in these um, dynamics in, in in the US, perhaps that's um, you know a bigger problem. But we've seen very similar things happen in Germany um, over the past few few years, where you have these these you know right wing extremist networks within the security authorities um, mm. in, in, in the army and in the police, um, you know, making for example data available to 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 um, you know outside networks, data about ethnic minorities, right, who are then targeted. By irate extremists. So I mean, this this this, this institutional issue um, really, really, really is a problem. And the you know reading reading about these these, these things and, and and the way in which other parts of, of state institutions have tried to tackle the issue. What we do find in both countries is still this idea that this is about being infiltrated, about mm -hmm. enemies kind of finding a way um, into the inside. Um, and not looking at this as a structural issue that is not just like someone coming from the outside and kind of, you know, like an, an outside enemy um, trying right. to destroy um, structures that, that both countries have built um, and that they're, you know, rightly proud of, 
um, but that this this goes much much deeper, and that you know kind of takes us back to these very powerful um, narratives about what is currently going on, who who's the enemy, and and what are we trying to to save, and then we're having very you know similar dynamics there um, that have to do with the overall global situation, and immigration, and you know kind of protecting a white supremacist order at the at the mm-hmm. end of the day, and then in many ways um, the, the the things that we've built, and then I know a lot of people. Don't don't want to really hear that um, kind of contributing to that, right? It's not just okay. We haven't really figured out how to how to respond to this 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 enemy within. Um, it's also how these institutions kind of reproduce the structures that make that possible in the first place. And to that extent, um, again, we're seeing very very similar dynamics at at work in in Germany and the US, which is a particular vulnerability for democratic and open societies. I mean, that you, it, we were talking about this last night. We kind of have a uh, a text chain uh, of the three of us. And we we're trying to talk about how safe is New York today? Because in the United States, mobs can form uh, legally and they are protected. Uh, it's a part of our freedoms as a democratic society. But those it's a thin line between when those mobs, you know, become a threat, you know, and 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 you you also have that problem in the institutions itself. Like anybody can hold these positions, anybody can come up through the ranks, but at what point does the system itself start to imitate those darker features of the democracy? Um, that that's that's the harder question because up until that point, you don't have a whole lot of checks, you know. Um, to to weed that stuff out because they they're exercising their rights to get into these positions. Yes, although um, I mean the provisions there are are different, um, you know, um, in in the U.S. Com- compared to to Germany. So there are already um, I'd say a lot of safeguards at place in Germany, perhaps more than so than in in the U.S. because you have a different understanding of the freedom of expression. Right, it has a it it is more limited in Germany compared compared to the U.S. But it's those those mechanisms, those are safe safeguarding mechanisms, um, clearly don't work in Germany either, right? Um, and that that mm-hmm. goes for you know identifying those right wing express networks within um, state institutions. It goes for preventing people with you know all kinds of mental illnesses to 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 own weapons. Um, you know, I mean, in, in, in theory, you know, there are a lot of lot of um, safeguarding measures in place, but they don't necessarily work as well. Although, you know, when it comes to to expressing, you know, your your opinion on the street, we, we've had again very similar debates in Germany, and in particular during the, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, about demonstrations, um, far-right demonstrations that were, you know, really targeting the state and and, and protesting against the state as a as an alleged dictatorship. And the extent to which um, that needs to be possible, made possible in a, in a democracy and to what extent it is actually really, really dangerous. Yeah. Um, and, you know, contributes to the kind of dynamics that you were referring to where, you know, there might be a tipping point at some point. Um, and it's in any case, always a very thin mm. line to walk. Absolutely. Yeah. Tipping point's a good way to put it. So I, I got to ask, you know, since this is the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, um, my question I always love to ask is, and you know, you you obviously shared, and we'll get into it, I guess, here in a little bit. But what your your purpose is? I mean, um, what what um, use case you see in Niebuhr uh, to address this issue? But on a personal level, 
I always love to ask, my first question I always love to ask is like, what got you into Niebuhr? Where along the road? Because it's quite interesting, you know, like having done this for quite a few episodes now, it's fascinating the ways that people have encountered Niebuhr and why they ended up studying him. And yeah, why Niebuhr? Yeah, um, good question. Um, because I, I'm a total newbie, right? When it comes to to, to Niebuhr. I mean, I've been um, working with his ideas now, I think for like, what, one and a half years. And that's, you know, the kind of ISCGS project that I propose is really kind of only the second output from that that work. I have an article under consideration um, by a journal at the at the moment where you know I write about Germany and now I'm trying to to apply that to to the U.S. context. It it, it was almost accidental, I have to say, um, because I was I was trying to to find a concept of irony um, that takes a historical approach and also brings in you know um, moral and, and ethical um, wow. elements. And I, you know, I had this this faint memory of the irony of American history as a kind of book title in my head, but that was really the extent of it. And then as I was searching for for you know a particular concept irony that was you know not about literary irony, and and that would really kind of take this historical approach, I stumbled over Niebuhr and I read through the, the irony of American history, and I, I was blown away, I have to say, by just how well that fits uh, with, with my research and, and with what I was trying to do at the time, um, which was to kind of explain historical incongruities um, in response to dealing dealing with terrorism and dealing with right-wing terrorism specifically. And, and his, his idea of, you know, we need to confront our own illusions in order to make sense of these incongruities and, and um, you know, go back in time and reflect on ourselves in order to, you know, avoid evil, in order to um, also make self-transcendence possible, to move forward, and everything that, that spoke so much to me, um, and it kind of mapped very, very nicely onto what uh, what I was doing and and ever since I know I I, I haven't looked back since really it's um, <laughs> mm-hmm. um which is interesting right because I'm not a theologian um I'm not an IR scholar I'm not um at least until very recently I haven't really focused on the U.S. either but I I read this book and then it just kind of spiraled from there and then kind of you know I, I went through some of his, his other books I haven't quite you know finished my study of, of Niebuhr yet, but I suppose that goes for, for, for everyone in this <laughs> in this discussion, uh, because you're never really done with Niebuhr in a way, but it's, you know, kind of reading him for me was a, also a very, um, a very good experience on a personal level, right? because reading his things for me is a, it's incredibly hopeful, I have to say, like, I really, I was, you know, kind of really uh, finding new motivation almost to, to, to research um, terrorism and all the other terrible things connected to it. Um, because he has this, you know, not just the skepticism towards the human condition, but it's, it's connected to this idea of hope and, um, Mm. you know, this, this imperative to act and to transcend ourselves and then work towards justice in the world. And, and I think that's really, really useful in the context where it's just all about crisis and all the things that we cannot do and all the things that we won't achieve. And, and you know, how to, how to deal with that in a productive way, I, I find Niebuhr incredibly helpful. It's amazing. Beautiful story. <laughs> um, so I hope this question makes sense, Josephine. You can tell me if I'm being stupid. Um, you, you've earned that right. Um, <laughs> But you you mentioned that the one thing that stuck out to you for your project is Niebuhr's concept of self-transcendence and the possibility of collective transcendence. Now, we, I, we've talked about memory so far, 
Um, but my my question is the forward march of that, the, uh, maybe in terms of policy or whatnot. Do you see collective self-transcendence as similar to collective forgiveness or collective repentance? Or how would you how would you break that down for us? What would that look like? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. We're already getting into the details here. <laughs> um no, but indeed, I mean, the, the project really focuses on um, this question of how we can make self-transcendence possible in relation to countering white supremacist violence, mm -hmm. or at least understanding what the what what the problem is. And I mean, re repentance would be kind of part of, 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 of making that possible by recognizing our sinfulness in the first place, because a lot of, I mean, what I look at is, is the, our responses, right? Our understanding of white, what white supremacist violence is mm -hmm. in the first place mm -hmm. and how, how we're implicated in it, how we've, we've made it possible. And it's, you know, for, for me, confronting the issue comes down to one thing, and that is to accept our own limits. And all the things that we've done wrong in the past, um, going back hundreds of years, right? Uh, that is the recent thing, but confronting all the, the histories that we haven't worked through yet, all the injustices um, that are not really even on the map yet when it comes to how we conceive of the US, how we conceive of, 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 of modern Germany, and to use this awareness of these, these limits as a resource, as something that will make it possible for us to confront this issue in the, in, the, in the first place to so kind of abandon old success stories and old stories of exceptionalism yeah. and, and 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 confront um, our limits and and use that as a you know for good not to to make it impossible for us to act but you know make it possible um, I think that's very important to, to add because you know in, in response to, to to my suggestion to use Niebuhr to think these things through the impression that I, that I have sometimes is that people are very skeptical that this can actually be productive, right? That it that kind of focusing now in this moment, out of all, on our limits, will actually make it more difficult yeah. to to um, respond to the issue. And, and my position is is the exact opposite. But that you know that really comes out of of, of me seeing the hopeful dimension of of Niebuhr as really really central to his project. So yeah. I'm having I'm having a little trouble sometimes understanding why um, a lot of people see Niebuhr as someone who's very whose liberalism is very tempered and who's you know who kind of yeah. um, just is too cautious and too uh, much focused on keeping the status quo. I don't really see that. I have to say. Otherwise, well, I think I think yeah. if I had seen it, I wouldn't I wouldn't still be working with his ideas. Well, that's really interesting because um, I, you know, I had a separate question, but I think your answer really flows into that because you mentioned in your research proposal as well that Niebuhr's reluctance uh, is actually, ironically, is what reinforces the white supremacist structures of his day. And I, I was kind of interested that you used the word reluctance instead of incrementalism. Um, and so I, 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 if we can just jump into this other question, in your mind, I mean, there are all those people you're, you are you referring to who say, you know, maybe Niebuhr's approach really can't give us any productive ways to, to look forward and fix or provide solutions. So, I mean, do you see anything moral in that incremental approach or radical dynamic change as like what Bernie Sanders calls for or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's, um, I'm very sympathetic in general yeah. to his skepticism towards the human condition. I yeah. think that's an important 
thing to to um consider and perhaps that's my my conservative side i don't know yeah. um but i think that that's fair and i think it's it's important and it plays out right in in every in everyday life and and so in in, in that sense his work is very very empirical right mm-hmm. and and i mean he he went rather far with that sometimes to say you know because we're all sinful because we're all fallible um we really need to 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 make sure that you know although we're striving towards justice um we cannot risk you know disorder and i mean at the end of the day i think this this idea is 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 something to work with right to even confront us with that question of just yes how much can we do or should we do if we not all but a lot of us you know at least share that goal um to effectively counter this this Mm. this violence and then I think it's a debate to be had, right? I don't really have an answer um, yet mm-hmm. to as to, to how um, far we can go and just how much radical politics we need and how utopian it can be and should be. But I think it reminds us of the of the importance of, of that debate and that we should have it right now, um, especially those who generally agree on, on the, the fact that something needs to be needs to be done. Because the problem, I mean, that's the thing, right? Um, it's so overwhelming. There's so much at stake. Uh, we're talking about life and death, um, and we talk about mm-hmm. a long, you know, long past where a lot of you know there's, there's already been a lot of violence and and we still um, carry these memories but also the structures that made it possible um, with us and so the you know the kind of facing that problem um, I think he really makes it possible for us to to engage with it um, although it can be so overwhelming Mm -hmm. Um, and you know I mean ultimately we know that we're not going to solve this (laughs) in the next few few years right and we still have to do something well, yeah, and you, you have this this great line where you say, we need to increase our efforts to achieve a society free of white supremacist violence, even though we know we will be unable to do so in our lives and perhaps ever. And I just wrote next to it, um, Niebuhr has this, I forget which chapter it is in Moral Man and Moral Society, but he talks about sublime madness. And I was like, that is just a really good picture of that sublime madness that like, mm-hmm. um yeah, it just really encapsulated that really well. Impossible possibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah impossible possibility. But in, also, the, in, the indeed, whole... yeah. And to put to put it another way, I'm sorry. Um, I think that what you're saying also is that we can't create a new monster by trying to defeat an old monster, and that we have to recognize the universality of sin. Uh, the way that Niebuhr saw it is that even in our pursuits to overcome it, we have to guard ourselves against a self righteousness. That can actually be just as harmful to society. So we have to come into it recognizing our own limitations, even as mm-hmm. we're trying to to overcome, uh, you know, the sins of other people. So much of the time, I think that what is animating people on the far right, and I'm guilty of this, is a kind of self righteousness a little bit of people on the left. Um, that, and that's the big thing that they are often pointing to is that, oh, we're just, you know, we're just, I I think that their common refrain is, um, that we are, what did Hillary Clinton call them? A a basket of deplorables. Yeah. Yeah. We're just a bunch of deplorables and yeah. And they'll, they'll see people on the left as being these self-righteous people. And that does kind of create a really toxic environment. 
but I think that you and Niebuhr are correct in bringing in this humility of understanding our weaknesses, even as we're trying to overcome mm -hmm. uh, what's harmful in society. Yeah, I mean, self-righteousness comes in all shapes and forms, right? And and nobody is, is safe from that. And I think it's an important reminder also from, you know, I mean, it, this is also um, a, a very personal issue and it has to also to do with, uh, you know, if you do this as, a, as an academic researcher, how these things work within academia, right? And how you can talk about these things within academia where um, there's also the expectation that you come up with something new and that you that you're also you know working towards dismantling oppression of course that's the that should be the goal right mm -hmm. um this is we're not neutral when it comes to these to these issues um and we also you know all of us have to to find their place right define our position via v this issue which is different for me compared to someone who's you know not white or whatever, right? I mean, um, and then Nibo really also helps me reflect on that. I have to say, you know, my own my own sinfulness, if you like, um, my own the, the, my ways of getting things wrong, um, right? Because that's what I have to deal with too, right? There's so many things you can get wrong researching these things. Yeah. That starts with like using particular terminology, you know, that you know might not really um, go down well with with some people, maybe for good reason, right? But I still have to kind of um, take a stance on these things and make decisions and. And then kind of stand by them and then there are other things that I might just miss because you know I only see part of the world as well and I'm ultimately limited and and and, yeah. and the things that I can understand you know coming from from this particular position and and um, trying to to speak to a problem that is in itself very very complex and has a mm -hmm. has a long history yeah. um, and I think all of these, these these things are really you know found in Nippur and that, that goes beyond using his ideas as an analytical tool, it's also really something that that I think is useful for researchers engaging with these with these issues to come to yeah. terms with a very personal and very ethical issues that are involved in this. That's right. That, that's that's really good. By the way, we um so last week when we had Sean Casey on, we had we just happened to have a foreign policy expert on as Russia collided with one of our drones. Um, the U.S.'s drones. Uh, and this week, uh, Josie, we just got word, Aaron just shared this. Um, we've been keeping an eye on this. Like I said earlier, there has been a bomb threat at the New York the courthouse. courthouse. It, so basically, I think the police actually went to search and they deemed that the 911 call was uh, unfounded. So there wasn't a bomb. on. OK, so it's, but it's people just trying to throw wrenches into the. OK, know. OK, well. Anyway, we have an ex extremist expert on here uh, in case something happens. Um, so <laughs> I, I love, uh, Josie, when you, um, I said it was beautiful, like how you came to Niebuhr, but I, th I think that I was kind of channeling my own journey a little bit because uh, as Zach mentioned, so many different people come from so many different experiences, how they end up with Niebuhr. But uh, yours is a lot like mine because um uh, what first attracted me to Niebuhr was I was in social memory theory, collective memory type of stuff. And it just, and I was wanting to examine 9-11. I was living in New York City shortly after 9-11. So this is 2006 when I was there. So five years. Um, the city was still on high alert. I mean, it, it was a bizarre time to live there. And uh, and so I was I wa was wanting to do something with social memory and 9-11 and and irony of American history just like fell in my lap. Like it was just this perfect critique of national innocence 
and um, and it gave me this this great way of understanding things. Now, if if you could for our audience, could, could you kind of explain the social memory element of of how you're examining things? Um, what is this method like? Because you do speak kind of broadly about using Niebuhr to diagnose a problem. And it sounds like diagnosing a problem within the way that we're remembering our history and the way that we are understanding history. So I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit more. And I guess, what's the connection then to irony of American history? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the key point is that we have these, these, you know, big national stories about who we are and how we, you know, got to where we are today. And these stories are, um, you know, very similar at the same time, very different um, for Germany and and the U.S. In relation to 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 Germany, my key argument that I'm trying to develop in in different projects at the moment is that essentially Germany um, stands in its own way because it has kind of a you know, worked through the Nazi past, which is the idea, right? It's had success, has successfully worked through that. Um, it hasn't been an easy process. It's been a very uneven process, but it eventually got there just around the time of the change of the millennium, just before 9-11, mm -hmm. in, a, in a way. Um, so more than, you know, five decades after the end of the Second World War. But it has, you know, given it some uh, a new sense of innocence and a new sense of um, of mm. pride, mm. spiritual pride, and in Niebuhr's terms, perhaps, mm. and and a new sense of of strength, right? And and there's a lot, you know, of good things in that. And and of course, it is true that um, at the end of the day, Germany has emerged stronger through, you know, um, by working through that through that past. But now, because of this this conviction that um, Germany is a stable democracy, it, it it went through this process. It, it you know went through the struggle. It can do no wrong in a way. Um, and and being the good guys is very very central, right, to to German identity. Um, and especially when it comes to to uh, you know facing difficult um, issues, in including countering right wing extremism, structural racism. Ultimately, it always goes back to, but we're doing everything we can. And, mm -hmm. you know, we have all these things in place um, and, and we're, we're even doing more now, which is, which is true, right? Over the past few years, a lot of new programs and, and policies have come out that really try to, to tackle right from extremism and, and, and racism in, in a really new way. Uh, so there's been, you know, both kind of quantitative shift and a qualitative, qualitative shift as well. But it keeps coming back to like, you know, we have to defend our liberal democracy. We have to defend our achievements mm -hmm. against um, against the, the bad guys. And, and that creates a lot of blind spots. Right. So this the success story of Ger modern Germany creates blind spots. Um, and we need to go go back in time. And, and you know, and it, that is what's what's happening at, at the moment in different places in Germany, really, to confront all the histories that we haven't worked through yet. Mm -hmm. That includes German colonialism. It includes the the, the history of people that, that migrated to, to Germany after 1950, but also before, right? It's a history of Black Germans, Afro-Germans. It's, um, you know, creating more space for Turkish immigration, for Turkish Germans. All of these things that are kind of missing from the, from the big picture. And so, you know, how we remember the past and how we remember how we work through things yeah. <laughs> and, and all the things that we missed along the way, um, that is a process that Germany is going through right now. We're just at the, at the very beginning. And, and that makes it so interesting to me to look at how US commentators are trying to learn from Germany and how mm. it 
you know, worked through the past, because that process is not, not over. And, and I know that these these that th those people who are saying we should learn from from Germany do acknowledge that, right? It's never finished that process. But at the same time, I feel like you know we really need to to take into consideration those blind spots that Germany also has, mm -hmm. even as a country that has already done quite a lot of work, you know, to to yes. understand its past. It's amazing how the myth of national innocence can crop up in a variety of different ways. So I'm just like thinking about the the comparison between German history and American history. We didn't have a Hitler. We didn't have a Third Reich. We didn't have a Holocaust. We had, we killed Native Americans. We enslaved millions of Black people. We had Jim Crow and segregation in the South. We had more, more of a uh, boiling frog history of this, where we never had a clear line of, like in Germany, you, you maybe had something comparable to a collective repentance after World War II. There was a rupture um, that World War II provided, kind of, and maybe you could speak more to that. But then that kind of crafted in your history a way that, oh, we've dealt with that. We're innocent now. Whereas we are like each step along the way, oh, we got better. The, you know, during Jim Crow is we got rid of slavery and then, oh, we have Jim Crow now. And now that we've gotten rid of Jim, Jim Crow, we're like, oh, we don't deal with racism anymore, but it's still here, you know? So uh, it's just it's just interesting to see how these parallel histories a little bit. And I, I wonder if you could speak more to that. Yeah, absolutely, because that, that's really, really interesting. And I think we're really starting to really explore that in more, more detail, because on the one hand, you, you're right. Um, you know, Germany has had a very different history in, in the 20th century in, in particular. And you have 1945 still as a, as a key, key, key reference date. Um, but of course, we shouldn't forget that it took four decades, really, before that there was a major debate about the place of the Holocaust um, in hmm. German national identity um, and, and German history, mm -hmm. right? So um, there was a long period of, of forgetting and, and repression and, you know, things already really started to change with the 1968 generation, which of course was not just a German phenomenon, but it took on particular forms in, in, in Germany with a, you know, a new generation kind of rebelling against their parents and the, you know, so-called Auschwitz generation and, and their involvement in the, in the, in the Nazi regime. And I, that's the first you know, thing to to consider um, that it took a long time, and 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 the other thing is that you know just just as much as racism didn't end in 1945, um, neither did it end you know in the mid 1960s and the end yeah. of segregation in in the US, right? And there is a you know that there is that parallel belief of you know we've left some things behind for good, and and in the German context. Um, working through the Nazi past is a, is a ultimately a very specific project that only touches on particular forms of racism in a, in a very limited, uh, to a very limited extent. And I mean, the Holocaust as a, you know, um, murder of the Jews, of course, is, you know, it's, 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 it's one, one part of the, the, the things that, that, you know, Germany experienced and that Germ Germans did to, to, to the world. Um, but it doesn't cover everything. There are a lot of things, you know, that we, that we haven't worked through. Um, and again, that kind of takes us back also to, to German colonialism um, and other forms of racism to the extent that you want to subsume, you know, mm. anti-Semitism under, under, 
the umbrella of, of, of racism and that that can be debated but that that's what I mean with you know blind spots um, that you know you have this pride in working through the past and it's kind of like almost like you know made in Germany <laughs> like an export right. almost like a, like a brand in a way and there are good reasons for that but it's it's more complicated than that and then if we now use Germany as a reference case for how to come to terms with the past I think it's you know even more important right now to really focus on these blind spots and all the things that Germany has missed mm. again as a way of making of making it possible for for us to de develop you know better policies and better but, ways yeah of bottom line is no matter what the history and no matter how how different they may seem they're actually a lot more in common than you might think on its face and that regardless the myth of national innocence creeps in no matter what you're doing and that's why the, the Niebuhr's idea of sin is a great metaphor for this thing that you're constantly having to deal with. You're you're never completely relieved of of those impulses and tendencies, and you have to go into it realizing that that this is your dark passenger that's always going to be with you that you always have to deal with. In a weird way. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Josephine. No, I was just going to say um, that that is very important, right? The history is open yeah. and we, we don't have control over history um, because I remember the, um, you know, the, the, the foreign minister, Joschka Fischer, in this, you know, very important um, left of center government that came to power on the federal level in 1998. He actually wrote a book with the title, you know, Re The Return of History. And one of the chapters actually directly references Niebuhr. Wow. Um, just in the title, really, just, you know, the, the, the irony of history. And that really struck me because um, Niebuhr wouldn't have talked about the return of history, right? Because mm. that kind of suggests a sense of control. We've already been there. We know this and now right. it has returned yeah. and we might have to deal with it in a different way. But still, it's like a, you know, kind of a, um, a heuristic, you know, this idea of return of history. And it's really struck me as anti-Niburian. And, and unfortunately, he doesn't really comment on it um, much. He mentions his name in the chapter, but 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 that's Interesting. it. Um, yeah. so that's, there's a subtle distinction between history as recurrent and history as open or mystery yeah you know? yeah that's really good that's good there's an observation that i mean i want to make as well that i think is kind of similar but it seems that one of the bigger differences between the u.s and germany i live in germany for a bit which we talked about is the displays of free or the limits to free speech when i lived in dachau um it's funny, I had a family member there who uh, is a Trump supporter. Um, he's a nice guy. Um, but the one thing that he kind of was taken aback by was at the front entrance to the concentration camp was a, was a sign that says you, shouldn't, you cannot wear anything of right-wing paraphernalia or Trump stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you're not even allowed to display flags at national sports events and stuff like this and gatherings. But in the U.S., it, mm. it, there is this weird sense of privilege, and that free speech should be unfiltered. That if it's if my free if my speech is constrained by some metric, whatever means or law, then I'm not free. But we have defamation laws and stuff like that, limits to what you can't say. But there's something in the public sphere, this consciousness that well, we just don't attach. To I'm that. wondering if laws like this against free speech, I mean, it's up for debate. Like, yeah. how much of this are we trying to control collective memory? How much of this is actually doing worse by kind of projecting an image of purity that kind of leaves us blind to the racism that's hiding underneath? 
Yeah, I, this yeah. is an interesting question about how, like, and and I think well, that we'll get to this later on. I had a similar question about this, but how do we introduce some of Niebuhr's concepts into here? Because to enforce things on the way that we think uh, about these issues, about free speech and stuff like this, doesn't this just bury the beast deeper and make it harder to find, I guess? I don't know. It, you could oh, say like that, or it could be something in, induced induced transcendence almost or however mm -hmm. uh josephine's defining it or i sort of wonder though if it, it has to do with the fact that germany takes that more seriously like they're more cognizant of the 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 harms that can do based on yeah. history to some degree right. one of the things i thought of when i was reading your proposal actually is there was a lady who i did a funeral for just recently and she she grew up in germany in world war ii and one of the ways i do funerals is that i go through and i read their uh, I, I asked their family the story of their life. I want to know all about their life, their whole life story. And I was really struck by how much like shame their like the family felt about her childhood, even though she was just a child, you know, she lived in like Southern Germany in World War II. And they were very careful to retell, you know, like her, mm -hmm. what her dad did and her dad's involvement, her mom's involvement and this kind of things. They were very cognizant of the, even though they're the next generation and they've lived in America their whole lives, they were still very cognizant and very, there was a lot of shame, I think, that they were, they only told me very gleeful and happy stories about her childhood, but she also lived through, you know, the local town next door was completely devastated in in bombings and you, I guess, so yeah, so one of the things I, I, I thought when I was reading this is I was thinking, you know, it, it seems like they almost have a better awareness because, I mean, if you come into the United States, uh, people are like, oh, no, like the, the shame is not as present. They're not they almost like can like just keep going without even thinking about the the real harm that was done in the past and how uh, those narratives are connected. Um, and it seemed like they, just in this conversation I had with this family is that they were a little more aware. There was a little more like it was more apparent, you know, but yeah. I'm wondering if if some of our uh, social taboos can create a facade of purity um and getting away from kind of what Josie's concerned about of dealing with the realities of sin or evil in our history and in our present there's a debate here i had this as a as a question later on but i wanted to get your take on it Josie. um i might as well ask it now and we can skip my turn next time but we have a debate here Josie, about whether to to take down Confederate statues or not. And in 2020, the George Floyd um, Black Lives Matter protests here in the U.S. caused kind of an upheaval, kind of a um, a new way of understanding race where like our sports teams were like getting rid of their uh, caricature racist type of mascots like the Indians changed their name to the Guardians and and Redskins changed their name to something else. Uh, and we and people were tearing down statues. People were um, I, uh, businesses were taking down their logos because they uh, show it was like it was like some caricature of a black lady. There was one of them. Um, so I, I want your take on this. Like, what does this do about collect? Like, what's the, what's the role of statues? and and things like this uh maybe even rules about speech and wearing a trump hat at at a holocaust site 
What's your take on these things and what's their role, I guess, in social memory, how we're remembering the past? Yeah, those are really important questions. And there was a you know a lot going on, right? <laughs> <laughs> and what you were saying um, just just now, because I was thinking and when you when you talked about Dachau, Aaron, of course, there we're talking about a site of, you know, that is part of industrial mass murder, right? Mm-hmm. That's something that we that we we shouldn't forget. So it's a, it's a very particular um, site and concentration camps in, in 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 general are, you know, that that are symbolic of this this rupture of civilization, uh, famous Zivilisationsbruch um, in German, and 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 that is still, you know, um, well, finally in a way, and and, and still today um, at at the center of, of you know how how Germany deals with its with its own past. So those those rules are there, you know, in, a, in a, for, for good reason and then against against that that historical background and the the place it now has and again that hasn't always been the case um post 1945 but it it, it now is the, the, the place that the holocaust has in german memory collective memory and german national identity and and to that extent you know that will always be different to the to the us and in a way the us is is, is you know lucky perhaps um because it means that it hasn't you know perpetrated industrial mass murder in that sense having said that that is of course the question now right how to talk about racial violence um genocide and native um native americans um to what extent that is comparable comparable to what extent it is um we can use similar language to talk about these these, these crimes or whether we have to to do that in different in a different way and, and again you know how, how much the us can and should um, learn there from from germany because the contexts are different of course but we're still talking about you know eradicating human life um from you know the the face of the earth, right? Really, the the ultimate sin, right? There's there's nothing really really be be beyond that, and then you know I, I, there's obviously a close connection then to to what to do with the the elements in public space that remind us of these 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 pasts, um, and I suppose we have you know two different kinds of memorials there, and you see that very clearly in in Germany, where on the one hand you know you have this 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 course, the most famous one now is the, the Holocaust Memorial in the, in the center of Berlin, right? Um, from where you can actually see the, the Reichstag, uh, the federal parliament, it's just a, a stone throw away. And so you have, you know, a lot, a lot of these memorials and more are being erected, you know, commemorating victim groups of, uh, of the Nazi regime that haven't been really part of the story so far. For example, um, um, queer um, victims, and that's one part of the story. And then we also have memorials in Germany. Actually, we have very similar debates again. Um, for example, in Hamburg, there's a major debate right now about what to do with the Bismarck Memorial and everything that Bismarck stands for. You know, as, as part of, of German colonial history between you know 1880s and and um, um, 1920s, right? Not, not a long period compared to other national colonial histories, but 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 still, and it's this massive monument, right, um, in Hamburg, really towering over part of a part of the city. And and currently, there's a you know um, a lot of a lot of debate happening there about what to do with it, right? Whether they should keep it if it's being um, restored. I think at the moment, there's a you know even the debate about what exactly that should look like, right? Um, whether it should actually be 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 improved in a way to look be even shinier (laughs) or you know whether we should just keep it keep it as it is and yeah historians disagree 
over 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 that and it's it, it's an open question right i mean at the end of the day i suppose what needs to go together is if you decide to keep certain monuments that um honor individuals that you know were sinful in the broader sense that contributed to to human suffering um and that committed crimes to the extent that we that we keep them we also have to be um willing to work through that and to open our discourses to to contextualize them and to use them as a as a as a source mm -hmm. for 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 learning right and for confronting those those histories and those and those sins and what they have to do with us mm -hmm. and not to kind of you know um, decontextualize that and just focus it on individual and to say you know this was just just this one person and and of course things happen you know in in history yeah. but to say no this is this is part of who we are as well and that you know and we have to make a choice about what that means for us today and of course there are different interpretations and some of them are more legitimate than than others but that is a debate to be to be had mm -hmm. um, i think that we could probably say honoring the victims good remembering the victims remembering the crimes good statues for the oppressors maybe not so good um like uh, so aaron and i are from a tradition uh, a church that has its origins in puritans who were and it's always awkward when we get to thanksgiving every year because there's kind of this desire to celebrate thanksgiving um, and thanksgiving in the united states is supposed to be like recognizing the the um, the Puritans sitting down for a big dinner with the Native Americans and the, yeah, the cooperation and stuff like that. And of course, like there's a very dark side to this that is always tricky on that holiday. And so our congregationalism um, that wants to love that part of it, it's a little bit harder to elbow in the darker parts of that. It's an awkward dance every year. We also have the same thing with, okay, so in Salem, we have, there's a commemoration for the people, for to the women who were murdered for being witches, quote unquote, uh, the witch trials. It would be, it's one thing to have a memorial for the victims of that and to remember that. It's another thing to celebrate, you know, the Puritan, to have a statue of the Puritan, you know, who did that. So we could at least probably say just that simple bifurcation. I know it gets more complex than that because you want to remember that Puritan too for what he did. Uh, you don't just want to remember the victims. But uh, but yeah, that's an interesting debate that we have every year. I mean, I guess to an extent it's about also saying that just building monuments is not enough just as like you know kind of um taking them down is not enough because e mm. even that won't save us from confronting what you know why they were built in the first place and why they were kept right. for so long or not right so i mean um, erecting monument monuments can also lead to to freezing memories right. and to disengage and to not to you know have the debates that we that we, that we need to have. So you know either way, mm. um, in relation to both victims and perpetrators, but also keeping or not keeping um, Very good. monuments, we we have to to think about what 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 they mean for us. Um, so we don't just you know put them there and then say okay job done and and we can move on, but in a way that kind of forgets these things. So we still so, have to constantly confront what they what they mean for us. So don't get rid of Thanksgiving. But use it as an opportunity to have that awkward dance. We need to have that discussion mm -hmm. every year. 
Um, we yeah, can't feeling uncomfortable. You know, I mean, uncomfortableness yeah. is something positive. I think that that's where we are at the moment to to say, um, you know, in, embrace feeling uncomfortable mm. with certain things um, that might have, you know, made you comfortable before. And that's that's the change, right? Where you're mm -hmm. kind of like being being challenged to deal with that. And a lot of people are, you know, understandably, I, I suppose that's also part of the human condition. We respond by, by rejecting these things, you know, those mm -hmm. changes that make us feel uncomfortable. Um, I think that's a very, very natural reaction. And it's also part of the debate that we have to have. Mm. There is, you know, is, you know, questions of, of feeling comfortable with, 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 yeah. with um, demographic change, with, with all kinds of changes, really. And, and, and to the extent that we take the human condition seriously, I think it's, um, and again, um, I think Nibu is helpful here to say, we can recognize this without immediately falling into the trap of repeating far-right narratives. Wow. So, so not only is irony an important diagnosis, for how we understand history, awkwardness, <laughs> um, difficulty, being uncomfortable is a necessary part that we could call it the uneasy conscience, like what Niebuhr calls it. You know, it's we have to have that awkward sense within how we're remembering our history. Absolutely. So both very insightful. Both people who want to keep the monuments and destroy them or take them down are committing the same sin, but from different sides. Interesting. Yeah, at least there's a you know a possibility that 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 is what what yeah. what what is happening, and and I mean, <laughs> um, in 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 a way, almost the thought of Niebuhr is not very comforting because we know how much trouble he went through to get you know to where to where he was right. Yeah. It's these massive personal investments in thinking these things through and committing himself to 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 the task. So it's it you know it seems very daunting, but at the same time, um, he kind of showed that it's possible right and and that it can it can give you something right feeling uncomfortable and confronting your own your own limits and your own illusions and and um those of your it's, of your community is is um you know can 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 be a positive thing and can make you then be more comfortable i suppose right isn't it fascinating that um yeah. that this happened it's no coincidence that niebuhr was german american so he had he carried both of these traditions ha had both of these histories that's that's interesting yeah absolutely so, i mean to be honest i was i was um surprised not to find much on niebuhr as a transatlantic thinker in the in the widest sense you know that there's not much uh, from the german side you know what i'm here you know what i'm hearing I'm, I'm hearing that maybe there needs to be a, a a german podcast um i don't know how you'd say love thy niebuhr in german but um <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe there needs maybe there needs to be a, a resurgence of uh no. Of neighbor um, and German. Yeah. I, I I did have a question, just getting back to your research. Uh, a question I was really excited to ask you was uh you said part of your your process, your proposal is that you're coming and you're gonna interview 15 uh people and they, they're under the two they're in two groups, the scholars and practitioners familiar with Reinhold Niebuhr's work and legacy, and then the second was scholars and practitioners concerned with countering white white supremacist violence. I'm super eager to ask you, who are you excited to meet in an interview? Um, I, I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, that is uh, something that I'm working on um, right now to define that because really I'm kind of almost spoiled for choice, right? Uh, at least on, on paper. I mean, it's always a question of, you know, who can make themselves available and who's willing to speak to me. Um, but because I have these kind of three 
pieces to the puzzle there are a lot of people that i would be interested in in, in speaking to so you know you have the um you have niebuhr obviously and and you know hopefully I'll, I'll have the opportunity to speak to people um including the three of you um who who know Niebuhr much much better than i do and who might you know be able to help me um and you've already done that today really um to think through how best you know um, to use his, his his work for for my purposes um, and all the different things that go into that right because I mean his work is so so complex and and of course it changes um, over time um, and so there's a lot of you know um, work to be done in, in in that area and that that's one part and then you have the part of white supremacist violence as a as a current political problem and there are people out there who you know try to to, to do something about it and a lot of people who, who have been trying to do something about it for a long time right because it's not a new phenomenon we've just started to talk in different ways perhaps about it and it's more present in in, in public debate and, and, and um, political debate but um, I would be you know really interested to ask them what what progress looks like for them how they motivate themselves to to you know uh, kind of get up in the morning day after day to to try to to um achieve justice work towards justice um counter this form of violence within a context that is ever changing right and of course in a context that is quite simply dangerous for their lives quite often right there are a lot of people who put their lines lives on the line to 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 confront this problem and then the third part is kind of the u.s you know german context and u.s german relations and you know the things that we've just discussed and um, the extent to which you can compare them what the two countries can learn from each other where they are in their respective histories and there are a lot of people in washington dc specifically but also in, in, in new york of course who um, fall into at least two <laughs> out of these three categories, uh, which is quite quite useful to kind of really bring it bring it all together. And so I'm hoping to to speak to people at um, Union Theological Seminary mm. and um, to to you know other people really focusing on 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 Niebuhr, but also those within the I suppose establishment I mean it's a, a bad word by now but um, who and I'm really fascinated with that because you don't really find that in Germany at all um, who refer to Niebuhr in their everyday work right I'm, I'm, I'm probably not gonna you know have the chance to interview James Comey but this is you know the kind of person that I'm, that I'm thinking of right someone Absolutely. who has Niebuhr on his mind um, and who takes inspiration from him and who at the same time um you know, ESO has been confronted with very concrete issues that, that have to do with, with how to deal with the human condition and, and, and with sinfulness in a, in a very concrete way and who has to develop policies that respond to these things. Well, um, if, if you ever talk yeah. to James Comey, if you ever talk to James Comey, let him know. You should go on to Love <laughs> Thy Neighbor, okay? Because we, we would love to have that guy on here. I was going to say the same thing in reverse. If we ever get the interview games coming, we should pass it along. Oh, absolutely. It'll go both ways. It's a good deal. Uh, absolutely. Um, that, 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 that's a deal. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is just this is really, really fascinating. As a, and again, because I'm fairly new to these, to these debates and to Niebuhr's position within U.S. intellectual life. 
um, and also how these things have changed over the past 20, 30 years and well, really since his, his death. But, you know, if you had this re Nibu revival and I feel like, you know, there's another revival happening right now for good mm -hmm. reason, uh, which already perhaps tells us a lot about the situation which we, we find ourselves in a yeah, broader context, yeah. right? If we, we return to, 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 to Niebuhr. Um, but, you know, the way in which, you know, he has been referred to and, and used to understand political problems, but also to legitimize, you know, um, policies and, and political answers and by all kinds of people from across the, the, the spectrum. And um, I think in a, in a kind of effective two-party system, it's really, for me, it's really interesting to see, right? Mm. I know I'm not the only one, but, you know, coming from a German multi-party kind of tradition, it's really interesting to see how he's been um, received Used, yeah. um, by different... This is kind of weird, but... I... I think I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, that there was a German chancellor not too long ago who quoted the serenity prayer. Um, yes. Do you remember anything about this? Yes. Um, so that was, um, was it Willy Brandt? I think it was before Merkel. Uh, oh no, Schmidt. No, sorry. Yes, Schmidt. Helmut yeah. Schmidt. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, actually, he quoted the serenity prayer um, quite regularly interesting um yeah and it isn't really like you know go much beyond that but it yeah um, it was kind of the okay so it's kind of a slogan yeah yeah. Okay. yeah 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 but i mean he does he does appear um in very interesting ways and that's why i was thinking of Willy brand because um i think he received a nibor prize at some point in the 1970s i think it was just a one-off thing or something um but that existed at some point um, and then, of course, you know, Willy Brandt, yeah, going from, from Willy Brandt to, to, to Helmut Schmidt. And, and yeah, um, Helmut Schmidt uh, quoting Serenity Prayer on, on, on different occasions to kind of suggest this idea of, 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 of balance and of being guided, you know, um, by, by um, realistic ideas about the, about the world. Um, and it, I mean, that's one of the interesting things, right? The kind of picking and, and choosing um, mm. um from from Niebuhr's work um and a lot of that in in, in some ways is superficial if that is the right yeah. the right word he's used that way here too yeah yeah I mean and, and I think there's there's a lot especially in the German context a lot more more work to be done to kind of really introduce the, the, the you know uh, his, his work in a, in a more a more complete mm -hmm. um sense because there's so much more to I, I feel there's so much more to 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 take from that and to, to learn from it well yeah one of the things I really liked about your proposal is it's very concrete. Like you're, you very much have like specific reasons why Niebuhr can affect this issue. So I think sometimes that can remain really in the abstract. Yeah, I mean that that's been a big challenge. I have to say, it's 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 intellectually very stimulating. Um, certainly to kind of go from you know theological anthropology and those um, you know very lofty ideas in a in a, in a way and this this you know I mean if you talk. Like, talk about big picture i mean that's that's the proper big picture right looking at who you know what is man <laughs> who is man <laughs> and why is he his most vexed problem as he as he says um i mean it doesn't get much much bigger than that right and then to kind of move on from from this to something that is yeah very very concrete and happening now right and happening from one day to the next and yeah you have those alerts on your phone and you know that something could happen any time, right? I mean, that that's that's the kind of like state we're in right now, where getting those messages on your phone doesn't really surprise you anymore, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be all kinds of things, and and you know, we we jump to conclusions quite quickly sometimes, um, and that also tells us something about you know our, our worldview and our expectations. But yeah, we're in a context where kind of you know 
having resources that allow us to to um, keep that that big picture and kind of try to you know orient ourselves within this within this context thing is really really helpful and 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 so to that extent kind of going back to the the most basic questions about human life and and human beings is really really helpful specifically in a moment where we, we tend to get lost in current developments and and um, you know details and and everyday events and where things are so dynamic um, I find it really useful to be reminded of these these broader questions of what it means to live as a human being and to to act in the world so I have um two questions now they are related back in Char- Charlottesville when uh there was that big protest and a bunch of people died donald trump tried to explain it by stating that there were good people on both sides just as there is bad people on both sides and in a weird way we are kind of saying the same thing not maybe for that case but we're trying to hold intention failure and greatness so my question to you is in your research, or maybe just some off-the-cuff thoughts, how do we actually hold intention, moral failure, and moral greatness? And then the second question to this is, Niebuhr's concept of self-transcendence could be taken in a weird way to fetishize um, deifying somebody. They, someone has transcended nature to some degree, they've transcended their social circumstances and conditions, they're a great leader. Um, and you see it a lot now, even with Trump's um, com- upcoming indictment, people uh, r- comparing him to Christ uh, on his way to be crucified. Um, pe- I mean, people who are evangelical prophets saying that he is God's chosen. There was a literal guy who wrote a book not too long ago claiming that there are two sets of mentioning Messiah in the New Testament. One only one definitely refers to Christ, but one is kind of an open and vague and ambiguous word that doesn't actually refer to Jesus, but refers to somebody else. And he says it actually is Trump. Trump is the Messiah. So in that mind, how do we hold intention, moral failure and moral greatness? And how do we have a conversation today with neighbor in mind or with anybody else to keep us from deifying our political leaders or even ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose that is about judging what is what is real at yeah. the end of the day, right? Because the, I mean, those kind of narratives of, of Trump as a, as a savior, as, as Jesus himself, the, the, the Messiah, etc., is part of a broader conspiracy narrative about how everyone else is trying to to bring him and his community, his people down, yeah. right? Which is just empirically wrong, right? Yeah. This is, um, this is it's made up, it's a very powerful narrative, no doubt, but it already builds um, and, and responds to a demand for this, this kind of narrative, right? That because it makes people feel good about themselves, right? I'm, I'm in the know, I'm part of the chosen people, I identify with this this person. He speaks for me. Um, I'm a good person. I don't deserve whatever is going on in the world. I don't deserve to have my privileges taken away from me. Um, so there is, you know, um, just he, he's tapping into into um, a demand for these these mm-hmm. things in, in in a world that is no doubt, you know, getting 
more complex and more difficult to handle, right? And it's more dynamic. And, you know, looking at technological developments already, right, much faster than that used to happen in the past, right? So it's very little that you can actually rely on these, these, these days and you have to, to deal with these, with these dynamic changes. And that's one way of responding to that demand in, in, a, in a way um, that is very underdemocratic, very, you know, mm-hmm. um, illiberal. Um, but a response to demand, and I think we have to take that demand seriously, right? Yeah. Um, this, this, this demand for orientation and these kind of conspiracy narratives that you know d- d- divide the world into into to good and bad, and yeah, give 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 <laughs> some people at least um, um, what they want. It's very difficult to to find a response to that once that has developed and and established itself, mm-hmm. because it doesn't take much. Right. In a way, it doesn't doesn't require um, long periods of negotiations and trying to find consensus and all the things that democracy is about. It's like this is how it is. You know, here I am. I offer myself as a as a savior. And if only you do this and this and this, Mm -hmm. your life is going to be better and you get what you what you deserve. And yeah, and we have to develop, you know, kind of a way to deal with that and to make I mean, democracy is hard, right? Democracy yeah. is a lot of work, and um, and it's 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 bound to make you feel uncomfortable as a as a system already, and and I think and and, and of course you know that takes us to to all these debates about populism and and the far right and um the the depoliticization of 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 democracies that we have to to bring that back right mm-hmm. um and part of part of feeling uncomfortable is that you know bringing back this idea that it's not just about finding the best solutions, not just about being pragmatic, because that is in, in a way very anti-democratic because in a democracy, you lose sometimes, you mm-hmm. know, and, and your, your preferred party or government loses and there's a change in power. And then because it's a democracy, you get another chance a few years later, right? That's the, the key idea. And of course, that's a principle that, that Trump has, um, is challenging, right? This mm-hmm. basic idea of, of democracy and peaceful handover. And that's exactly why it's so, mm-hmm. it's so dangerous because that's really the, 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 the basis. And yeah, I mean, and to, to a large extent, the solution in a way, or at least a starting point, is to repoliticize politics, right? And repoliticize mm-hmm. democratic politics, which is, you know, the, the the longer we wait to do that, the harder it gets in a way, because these 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 much more simple ideas of what needs to be done, and that takes them back to Niebuhr, because of course these conspiracy narratives at the end of the day, kind of correspond to to Niebuhr's warning of there is no if only. You know, if only you get rid of right. um, whatever it is, particular group in society, or you know, um, you know, we collectivized means of production or whatever. You know, yeah. yeah. If if only you know, this is what's what's going to save us. And Niebuhr is like the you know <laughs> the, the one who really warns of this 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 key idea, and that's what they have in common. That's what the depolitization of democratic politics mm-hmm. and those conspiracy narratives, in a way, if we can say it that way have in common it's this idea of if only if only we find the perfect mm-hmm. policy you know we're all going to be happy it's it's yeah. not going to work right we, we're going to have to deal with with changes in power and and feel uncomfortable and losing and you know having a different idea of what society should look like um, compared to someone else um, because we're different people we have a different view of the world and we're we you know we have these ideological differences and that's okay mm-hmm. democracy is made to deal with this in a productive peaceful way and and we should you know return to that so we don't end up with a similar idea of if only um, because that's that's really when we're in trouble and we've been moving towards that for um 
quite a long time now and we have to you know move beyond that again or kind of you know return it's a great way to yeah. put it the if only critique of, of neighbor the irony and it was absolutely a fantastic response but the irony like to these conspiracy theories is that they project this aesthetic of order and whatever but all the connections they make are so chaotic and disordered <laughs> right and but I, in, this is the one thing that i've thought about too because i had an ethics class when I did my master's and uh, one of the ethical questions we came by was in terms of film and our professor showed us a, a film from uh, Goebel I think it was a Nazi propaganda film and he asked is this a beautiful film is it a good film like is it good and then you, how do you actually define that question and whatnot? And, you know, on the on the one hand, if you look at the uniforms and stuff, like maybe you could say there is an aesthetic quality of these things because it's ordered and regimented. And, you know, people might have this idea that just kind of hits them like, well, this presents something that's regulated, something that's that is easy to understand, something that we can just kind of re, re um, what's the Kierkegaardian term? resign back into you know and let it kind of decide for us i don't know yeah i mean those are the basic dynamics right that was um the nazis responding to a sense of disorder and the sense of be having been betrayed um you know the backstabbing myth versailles treaty the great depression of 29 all of these things that had happened before right um that produced this this demand for for a sense of order and for for simplicity and for for connecting dots in a way that somehow you know made sense and ignored a lot of other things but you know it kind of created an idea of you know who's the good guy who's the bad guy who betrayed whom you know the people deserve that and that um and 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 here's you know one person or you know two or three who you can identify with that that cause and it's just going to you know make things so much easier and it's going to give you what you what you want and what you deserve and and you know i mean these these themes are very very universal um i i suppose um in a german context I don't know if you would call it an advantage, but there's something to having lived through that history and having worked through it that you would hope, you know, creates a certain level of immunity towards towards repeating that exact same script. And we learned over the past few years that that is not necessarily the case, even in a country like Germany, which should be a warning to other countries that haven't had the same kind of history and the same, you know, um, very long and difficult process of working through that through that past, because if it doesn't even in a way work in Germany, then you know there's uh, perhaps not too much hope for for others either, mm-hmm. and then that is that is definitely uh, yeah. worrying. Niebuhr really highlights that really well in uh, Beyond Tragedy. I can't remember which chapter it is, but he talks a lot about the the I think it's maturity and um, childlikeness or something like that, and how uh, fascism really has a draw to the the simple. And the, the oh, travel okay. simplicity, they try to resolve the complexities of life with travel simplicity. Mm. And Niebuhr almost just by his disposition, just by the way he explains the world is almost antithetical to fascism because he's everything is complicated. You know, and there's mm-hmm. not a there's very few answers that are simple. Yeah. And of course, it's the ultimate sin, right? I mean, for both for fascism in, in a different way. And, and, you know, he does make a difference there to communism. But it's it's the mm-hmm. um, the ultimate sin of trying to control history and trying to control the human fate. Right. Um, this as in a totalitarian um, system, but for him, it's like you know the the ultimate sin against God and the ultimate sin that is you know trying to to um, have a kind of control and freedom and capacity that only God has. 
Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that's that that's really a good way of, of capturing that sinfulness of mm -hmm. these of these systems on, on, on some level. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, having simple explanations for the world, I, I guess all of us will always be attracted to that in a way. Yeah. Right. I mean, simple yeah. fairy tale, simple like storytelling mm -hmm. in general. Right. The best stories tend to be to be very simple, have a very simple structure. Um, for for good reason, right? Our, our brains just <laughs> respond to that, um, and and there are you know more and, and less benign simple stories. But the simplicity itself, of course, is not specific to fascist narratives, uh, neo-fascist narratives. We, that, we all enjoy that in, in in different in different different ways and respond to it. That kind of brings me back to Aaron's uh, comment about tr what Trump said after Charlottesville when he said there are good people on both sides. Now, Aaron, I, I get like kind of what you're going at. And this is something that I've struggled with before. Like, aren't we saying the same thing that Trump was saying? There's good people on both sides. No, and I, no. I, and I would say no. <laughs> no, I don't think that either. I'm just saying. No, I, no, no. Yeah. I, but you said, aren't we saying the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I get it. Yeah, But I, I'd like to just draw like a distinction here in that that way that he was trying to say it was trying to give a simple narrative that mm. we're all basically good. You know, uh, can't we just gather around that? Uh, and this is a very appealing view of the world that we're all good. That's very different from saying we're all sinful or we're all grounded in this very complicated reality of of uh, of motivations. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of the difference between kind of the fairy tales that that Josie was was just describing and something like Hamlet. Um, Shakespeare, where you have kind of these, Shakespeare brings out these layers of complexity of motivations and, and ironies and, you know, things like this. Um, shout out to Dr. Weatherly, who we've had on here, but he he once put the difference between a whataboutism, like what Trump will use, and the, and he compared it to the categorical imperative. So Kant's he says that whataboutism is an inverse of categorical imperative, where categorical imperative says that uh, what if everybody did what you are doing in the world? You know, that would make the world, would that make the world better or worse? Whereas a whataboutism says everybody does this in the world. So that excuses me to do mm. X, Y, and Z. It's kind of an inverse of that. Yeah. And there's a difference in motivations between Trump trying to ease the conscience of everyone involved by saying there are good people on both sides and Niebuhr trying to complicate the conscience on both sides and say, yes, we're all sinners, but there must be something that we do, Yeah, you know, in response to this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because the, sorry. No, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I want to make sure that I'm not coming off as a Trump supporter <laughs> or a fascist. Oh, no, no worries. We got you. No, but 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 I think it's very very important to to you know dig deeper into these things because yeah. the um I mean when 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 Trump said there were you know good people on both sides, on some level he was right, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's something good in all of us. There are a lot of and that brings me back to um, appealing to people's um you know idea of themselves as, as moral and good people yeah. um saying you know I'm I'm a, I'm a father of three I have to provide for them I'm I'm a responsible mm -hmm. person I you know I'm I'm a good husband or a wife or whatever it is I I do you know whatever for yeah. my community people like to have a sense of being responsible and 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 being a good person and that is not mutually exclusive with having you know an extreme right worldview right mm -hmm. um and then you know at the, at the, those protests of course, the difference is that, you know, in the, the, the kind of worldview that one group was projecting, the other group's rights and human dignity would be preserved. 
-hmm. that's not you know you know it doesn't hold the other way around that's the major difference right so Mm -hmm. their intentions are very very different and you know the things that they intend to do uh for the for the world was very very different um but i think this the subjective view of i'm a good person and i deserve abc is of course what 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 appeals um or what 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 trump and others are, are are using and um you know we might you know, co- condemn that and, and, and say, well, look, obviously you're not, you know, can't be yeah. responsible, a good person if you hold these kind of views and you want to, um, you know, you know, eradicate certain certain social groups. But, um, you know, human beings have, have developed um, ways of reconciling these things for themselves because we do want to think of ourselves generally as, as, as good people. But of course, that is, you know, the difference between the two groups um, that, that um, Trump was referring to. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a very delicate thing to yes. talk about sinfulness and, and goodness and, and, and human people. And I think at the end of the day, perhaps it's not even that important to think about um, ourselves as both sinful and good and you know capable of, of um, self-transcendence, but to think of ourselves as neither good nor evil, but limited, right? Mm-hmm. We are all limited in yeah. you know, yeah. how, we, how we see the world and you know, see ourselves and, and the extent to which we, we, we know ourselves, right? We, usually we you know, think uh, we know ourselves much better, both individually and collectively, mm-hmm. than we actually do. Right. We, we, yeah. And, and again, that brings it back to Germany, because there is this idea of like, yes, we do know who we are. We mm-hmm. invested mm-hmm. a lot into, you know, kind of almost getting to know um, ourselves again after that break in civilization and reconstituting the idea of the Germans and, you know, idea of a reunified country as well, uh, West Germans, East Germans, mm-hmm. the Germans. But we're still working through that and there are new chapters being opened, um, unfortunately, and again, we're now in a phase or like in a new phase in a way, in a new beginning of, of working through that. But I think this, this you know, we're, we're limited ultimately. I find that in a way much more helpful than thinking about is, you know, are humans good or bad? Yes, they are both, but but at the end of the day, it's about dealing with our with our limits um, and our abilities. I think it's the exact same scenario. January six insurrection, Trump gets finally on the television river and says, "You got to go home now. We got to have peace. You're very special. We love you." And it's like, well. No, You're very special to the interaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, like I, when I'm sitting there watching it, my blood is boiling, and I'm like, "You bunch of you know yeah. expletive, expletives," and then people are demonizing these people, and you know they they did horrible things, mm-hmm. but they're also people who have been almost as what Paul calls us uh, subjugated under sin, slaves of sin. They're slaves to their own you know desires and wishes and ideas about how the world is they're slaves to trump and his messaging and his branding you know but they're also free and they have they also, yeah, yeah, yeah there's a there's a there's a, a, yeah. There. a yeah i think that's that's really really important because um there's also that tendency to say oh you know the the um so-called populist leader kind of you know controls these people and mm-hmm. and you know it's uh, they're easily swayed and like no you're still responsible for what right, you do yeah. especially in a democracy that's the basic idea as an adult that you can make your own choices and that you have a choice um when it comes to to not just voting but you know all mm-hmm. the other ways in which you can express yourself 
in a in a democracy, and so you remain responsible for your um for your actions. And of course, to say you know these people are bad in some way, or at least they have bad intentions. They have you know in, intentions that would um and already causing a lot of suffering for other Americans now therefore just not you know cannot be reconciled with an idea of a liberal democracy that doesn't mean to take away their dignity it doesn't mean to take away their civil civil rights you know because that's the, the guarantee that they have in the democracy even if they're mm-hmm. bad in that way even those um and that same goes for Germany, um, you know, the extremists who are trying explicitly to, to overthrow the system, even they um, have rights, that that's the guarantee in a democracy. And, and, and to be honest, you know, I mean, the case that I'm, that I'm, um, I'm, I'm working on, um, I've been working on for the past decade, I realize, uh, which is the National Socialist Underground, uh, right-wing terrorist group in, in Germany. That was one of the debate, debates that we that we had in the, during the trial, right? How you know can we limit the the um, the defendants? Um, or should we limit their rights? You know, why are we investing so many resources into this this trial, which took five years? You know, um, they did all these horrible crimes or at least that's what we're trying to prove you know there's this, this very emotional side to these things of course and you're no this is about you know strengthening the system by showing we can deal with this even in a case like this that goes beyond you know our, our wildest dreams you know the things that a lot of people were able to imagine um before that that group was was discovered and, and the, the crimes um and, and everything um you know having a proper defense and and um sticking to the basic rules of liberal democracy that's that's our only and most important way of responding to these things and that's what gives us strength not dismantling these things and we see at the moment um, in, in Europe, but also in the US, where we have this, that we have this tendency to say, no, we have to reduce people's rights. No, you know, especially when it comes to asylum seekers and dismantling the architecture of, um, of refugee mm-hmm. rights, um, which at the end of the day will come back to haunt all of us, right? Because right. The, 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 um, the, the, the laws and conventions that we have in this area is supposed to protect all of us because we don't know what's going to happen further down the line, because we don't know what history might bring. This right. is, uh, you know, an insurance for all of us, mm. um, a protective measure, and, and we're dismantling it right now in response to, a, um, you know, a supposed demand from the people. And it's, it's just, you know, something that is supposed to protect us from each other in a way, because we don't know how things are going to plan out, even in, in countries that are very stable democracies. We just don't know, don't know. right? There are a lot of things that we didn't expect in the past either, and they still happened. Um, and that's, you know, th- th- there's a human condition for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we have time for um, one more question a piece here. Now, talking just practical stuff here. So here in the United States, we have a governor, governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who some are some call uh, Trump light. Some say some are more fearful of him than Trump. Um, he is uh, actively banning books in libraries uh, in Florida, books that deal with uh, race issues and our, our past, our history, um, throwing out textbooks in the classroom. So some of these textbooks are being replaced. They're trying to replace them according to his guidelines about you know, it can't. So I saw one passage of a textbook trying to, like, trying to f- conform to the guidelines, and it mentioned Rosa Parks, who was a pioneer of our civil rights movement here, uh, and it never mentioned race. It just said that sh- this ambiguous woman 
was asked to go to the back of the bus and she didn't didn't even bring up race in this thing and i i don't know if this textbook was approved or not but it was one of the textbooks they were trying to to bring into the classroom but on a practical level so you you use this term diagnosis niebuhr is helpful for diagnosing the problem of how we're understanding history but how do we integrate as you put it this conception of human nature or our awkwardness you know how do we integrate this awkwardness into our history and i think you admit in the third part you have on on niebuhr that this is kind of the challenging part how do we infuse the diagnosis so that's that's my question like on a practical level how do we move from the di the niebuhrian diagnosis to the prescription to the treatment yeah yeah um i think my answer to that at least for now and you know hopefully um i'll be able to answer that in a much better way <laughs> after the project is complete. Um, but, but for now, I'd say there's a reason why these changes, um, you know, the example that you just gave, these, these, I mean, the story doesn't make any sense without reference to race, right? It's like, why, why would she be sent to the you know, back of the bus and why did she refuse to do that? And um, there's like a, a big part of the story missing. Um, but it's still, there's a, still a lot of support for these things happening, right? And, and, and there's a reason why we came into power in, in Florida in the first place. And I think the, the, the antidote to that um, is, is all the stories that we haven't told that make that possible, mm -hmm. right? Because the, you know, Rosa Parks, perhaps mm -hmm. not specifically her story, but everything around it, racial segregation and violence and, and how it, um, African-American history is, is, is um, American history, right? And everything that, that, that they suffered and that Native Americans suffered, this is not just something, it's not something that, that you know, talking about that doesn't threaten an idea of American history, it completes it, right? It makes it more mm -hmm. honest, it makes it more truthful, um, all of these things. And I think that's the, that's the, the most important thing mm -hmm. to really institutionalize this, this different way of, of storytelling um, and, and, and confronting history, because um, this is, you know, it gives other kinds of resources, right? If, 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 if children, including white children, grow, grow up with this, and of course, it's a generational question, ultimately, these things will, will take time. But that is, of course, what we're seeing, fortunately, at the, at the moment. This is what, what is happening. Um, it's been happening for only very you know, in a very short, um, short time, in a way, very, very recent, um, these initiatives, including in the in the, in the deep south, right, Mississippi, um, in, in in particular, um, where people are trying to do this, and it's really, really hard work, right, to convince yeah. communities to to tell their stories and tell them tell them differently. Um, but I think that's the most practical way of doing it, in a way, to institutionalize that and to to, to support and fund projects that do that and and you know we, again we see it in Germany too there is there is state level support for um you know telling new new histories um including of colonialism yeah. um, and I think that's the that's the right way to go um and we've just started doing that but I think that's the ultimately the most um, are you are you afraid at all if once you institutionalize it you get a more fervent backlash against it yeah, I think that's the. I mean, you know, in a way, we're going through phases here, right? And it's one of the one of the reasons why it makes this particular moment so so dangerous. Because in a way, it will at this point be almost impossible to prevent the backlash, even mm -hmm. if you're doing the right thing. And in a way, 
doing the right thing has a lot of you know radical elements either do it properly or you don't do it at all right so we need this this active commitment to saying you know yes to knowing more about ourselves yes to you know like opening up ourselves to this um to these feelings of of uncomfortableness um, but once you take that step, you, you're going to have to, you know, expect that that backlash, um, you know, because it will, you know, a lot of people won't be happy with being um, um, made to feel un, un, uncomfortable. And they will also then connect that back to their alleged democratic rights, right? Mm -hmm. And to... To what they deserve and, and and to what they've been promised and then there will be people who who like trump and others who abuse that and, and DeSantis in many ways is much scarier than trump because he's such he's much more capable he's much more strategic yeah. he knows exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it and and how to to appeal to his to his electorate and um and his supporters there, there um, seems to be almost a cultural component to this as well because like we've gone through things i, I don't know if this happened in europe as well but just a couple of years ago, when we went through the George Floyd Black Lives Matter stuff, around that time, we were also going through the Me Too movement of uh, women. And I, I have noticed a big change in our culture about the way that we treat rape victims and women who are standing up and are finally kind of emboldened to say something. And that's and that's allowing for more women to come forward. So there is a cultural component to this as well that we can see, um, but it has to meet up with the institutional side as well, I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, this is about being supportive of these developments. Um, and and yeah, we've, you know, I mean, social media has made that possible. There's a, yeah. you know, a positive effect of that. Of course, creating a platform for these stories, you know, having hashtags and, and creating this conversation online. And that is about storytelling. That is about saying the things uh -huh. that uh, for, for which there was no space before in public. And now, you know, there is a, you know, a certain dynamic of being being having having that that capacity and those possibilities, right? Of, of um, um, just saying things without um, having an editor or someone else to kind of um, you know channel um, wow. or like you know you you know um, that's so true. That's, as a, that's a storytelling element, gatekeeper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, as you know, there the, are the, the, the fewer gatekeepers in that sense. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, yes, um, you you know you have responses. To these things you have death threats and, and rape threats right. and all of the abuse that is going on and response people telling their their stories and you know that that obviously creates all other kinds of kinds of um problems and including you know what the state should be doing about this right mm. about these um about online abuse and hate speech hate crime so you know it, it's always kind of both right is it as an emancipatory dynamic there and a liberating um, mm -hmm. dynamic and you can organize people through through um, online channels much easier than it, you know that used to be the case but at the same time of course you have um, this 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 backlash against the change to the to the status quo so then it looks like you have kind of two instruments you're working with here storytelling and institution like these are kind of the ways that um, that we can start reinterpreting or you know better understanding our history yeah absolutely it's like you know kind of institutionally kind of anchoring these these new ways of more um, different ways 
of telling our histories by you know kind of um collecting new new stories um of um you know what human life actually looks like right it's a pluralization of of how we think about human life and making these things visible they've they've been around right for a long time this is not about kind of reinventing um humans it's about like making making things visible that were invisible before um and of course this is you know in a way um it's part of the the problem where people are saying like we didn't have these things before right um what's all this new stuff um it's part of this is you know feeling uncomfortable and you're like well it's not really new you just didn't know about it (laughs) people went through this you know they suffered they were oppressed and just because you didn't see or didn't know about it doesn't mean that you did that didn't you know exist um and i think that's very important to 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 make clear because this this i see this response um a lot still right so like okay like why are you making things so complicated you know it used to be so easy it used to used to be um much easier to to um to deal with life in a way and you're like yeah but then you know look at who you are and who i am and you know what our positions are in society and yes there are differences and this doesn't necessarily mean that you know you're bad and i'm good it's not the point this is not where we start just you know you know um kind of take these stories seriously um, and then I think, again, that's what Niebuhr does. He takes the yeah. human, you know, uh, warts and all incredibly seriously um, and is, is, is open to really working, you know, with a human just, just as it is in a way. And, and, and then I think that really opens up different ways of, of thinking our, our current moment. Excellent. Thanks a ton for coming on, but I, I really, we really appreciate it. Um, my final question is uh, just a real simple one. Um, you kind of mentioned irony of American history as kind of probably one of your central texts that kind of brought you into Niebuhr. Uh, is there anything you've identified in his writing that you're looking forward to researching that you haven't had time to really dive into yet? Is there any any of his works specifically? Yeah, I think it's um, beyond tragedy. Awesome. I mean, I'm so grateful for, for <laughs> to you guys for kind of going through that chapter by chapter. And I haven't I haven't listened um, to these episodes um, yet, but I think one of the things that I'm fascinated with still is this, you know, the distinction that he makes between um, irony and and, and 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 tragedy, and also how that is part of how his thought evolved, right? Because tragedy came much earlier in a way, and then um, the irony of American history is, you know. I mean, what, 52, his first, the first time that he really engages with the concept in a, in a kind of comprehensive way and how the two concepts, you know, kind of relate to different elements of, of the human condition, how we can, how we can um, capture that. But in, in general, I have to say, um, I'm really fascinated by his, his trajectory and how his thought develops over time and how that responds to events and to the things happening around him. Because I think, again, that's very important also on a personal level, because um, if you work on these issues, you know, things change all the time. And there are, you know, a lot of people involved in the bigger project of, um, you know, extremism and race and, and white supremacy and, and, and what to do with it. And, you know, it's, it's a, you have to, to listen to others and how they go about this and, and, and how, how they think about it. And you have to be open to changing your mind and abandoning old concepts, you know, using different kinds of language. And I'm definitely going through that process myself as well, where, you know, I wasn't using certain terms before and now I've changed my mind about that. And and I think that's important and fair, but it's it's also um, quite quite challenging. And, um, you know, it kind of makes you, well, it makes me really reflect on these things much more than I than I perhaps used to. Um, and, and again, you know, Bieber is really 
really helpful there as as someone who went through different phases and you know wasn't afraid to to change his mind for, for good reason right to take a different position and explain himself and and I think that's what we what we have to do right now as well last question I'm so honored thank you <laughs> uh, um you've mentioned a few times during our conversation and I think you've used this word these two words interchangeably optimistic and hopeful I'm wondering given all the stuff we talked about Someone having these kind of conversations could just walk out and say, be be a pessimist afterwards. Why do you remain hopeful? And then what are you hopeful for? Yeah, that's I, I think that's the, the central question in a, in a way. And I I mean, if you're, you know, kind of asking about the, the difference uh, or the extent to which we can <laughs> use hopefulness and optimism um, as synonyms, um, I wouldn't actually. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm much more. Um, leaning towards, you know, talking about hope and, and remaining hopeful mm-hmm. than being optimistic about how things will plan out specifically. Because uh, I think we've also learned perhaps in, over the past few years that it's really difficult to to predict what's what's going to happen. Whereas, you know, this idea of hopefulness is really, you know, I subscribe to, to, to Niebuhr's basic account of the human condition. And to the extent that I do, you know, hopefulness is, is a key key element there that human beings are ultimately capable of self-transcendence and of greatness and of, of you know working towards justice and achieving justice to, to an extent. And we've seen that in history, right? There's, there's empirical evidence that these things are possible. And as long as we're human, that will remain possible, right? And I think taking that seriously then has to do with, okay, if we want to remain hopeful and, and if we want to, right? Because it gives us a good feeling, right? <laughs> Being able to, 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 to remain hopeful is a, is a, um, a positive experience and a positive feeling, but that in a, in a way, ironically, I don't know, but also involves then being open to being uncomfortable, right? And in a way the two are, are linked, right? If we want to remain hopeful about change, then that also involves mm-hmm. us, you know, kind of getting to terms with, with, with the fact that we're going to feel uncomfortable for a very long time. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's, that, that's the phase that we're, we're in, right? We have to be prepared for that. It's not just something that will blow over within a few months or um, a couple of years. Um, and in a way, we've been in that phase already for, for quite some, some time. But it's, you know, uncomfortableness is, is, a, is a, um, not a positive word, but I think we can you might be able to turn that into something more positive, you know, and something productive and something that gives us hope rather than the, the opposite. Dr. Josephine Grafe, thank you so much for coming on with us. It's been a, a pleasure, wonderful conversation. We're so excited about the work you have coming up, uh, the work that you're, you're doing. Um, look us up. I mean, when, when you get over here, are you going to the, to the American Academy of Religion? Do you know what yeah, that is? I, I I hope so. I mean, really, because I'm so new to to this whole world. Um, I you know I have a lot of things on my list already, and I, I don't know if I'm you know going to be able to do all of this in in five months, uh, four months. But yeah, hopefully I'll well, you know embrace my. <laughs> so you're going to be here until like November, right? Is that what you said? At least until mid October, perhaps a few weeks oh, okay. longer. Yeah, I'm just you know in the process now of of, of planning. Um, 
all of that. But yeah, there's lots to explore and and lots to yeah. to learn when I'm when I'm over. And and it, but it, it's it's a collaborative project at the end, right? So I'm gonna rely on on people, you know, um, to to share their thoughts and their their ideas with me. And it's very explorative in mm-hmm. in many ways. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Very good. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. We want to thank again our guest, Dr. Josephine Grave. Follow her on Twitter and follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for news and updates. Give us a like and rate us. Write us a good review if you're digging the show. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. Bye.